Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It has been nearly two years to the day since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war that ensued has reshaped the global order and redefined alliances. For months, it has been described as going nowhere, a continued state of conflict with neither side doing enough to dramatically shift the balance. But just this week, Moscow did make a significant advance. It captured the city of Avdivka, and that represents Russian President Vladimir Putin's biggest win since taking the city of Bakhmut in May of last year. Kyiv is vowing to fight on, of course. I was just at the Munich Security Conference last week and I spoke with Ukrainian and European officials. There is a real determination to keep going. Denmark, for example, said it would send its entire artillery to Ukraine. But speaking of Munich, you will hear that come up a fair bit in today's podcast. I had a great panel discussion while I was there and we've put that up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. It is with Maria Ressa, Vera Jarova, Kent Walker, and Fumzile Van Dam, and they are all really smart voices on how to fight disinformation online, a recurring theme on FP Live. You do not need a subscription to watch that one, I should say, it's free. But if you'd like to watch everything else in our library, do sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So, February 24 will mark two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What will year three bring? FP published a series of takes from a range of thinkers, including David Petraeus, Angela Stent, Raja Mohan, many others. I urge you to read their work. It is linked here in the show notes. One of the contributors to our roundup says it's a mistake to call the conflict a stalemate. Instead, the means to deliver a Ukrainian victory remain firmly in Western hands. Well, that contributor is Anders Fogh Rasmussen. He's the former Secretary General of NATO and a former Danish Prime Minister and a frequent FP Live guest. Let's dive in. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, welcome back to FP Live. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So we were both just in Munich, and I imagine you had a range of conversations with Ukrainian and other officials. And the situation in Ukraine right now was described to me as being at its worst point since the invasion two years ago. And the capture of Avdivka was obviously a, a blow. What is your read? Is the war at its worst point for Ukraine right now? Yes, uh, Ukraine is in a very critical uh, situation. Uh, it's not a stalemate, I would call it a weaponized stalemate uh, with the front line moving forth and back. But right now the Russians are on the offensive. Uh, so it's a very critical situation and Russia has still occupied around 
20% of the Ukrainian territory. I want to push you a little bit on why you think it's wrong to call this conflict a stalemate. What's the problem with that terminology? The problem is that uh, it's, um, I would call it a defatist uh, approach, uh, too defensive. Uh, I mean, if the Western countries deliver all the weapons the Ukrainians need, then they could advance. Last year, uh, we were disappointed to see slow progress uh, on uh, the expected uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. But we are to blame ourselves for that. We have been too hesitant to deliver the weapons the Ukrainians need. And in the meantime, uh, Putin exploited our hesitation to fortify his defenses in eastern Ukraine, which made the counteroffensive much more difficult and also, unfortunately, much more uh, bloody. What you're describing, the failure to not give Ukraine enough weapons is, I think, in your essay in Foreign Policy, one of three failures. Uh, so there's that. Second, failing to prepare Europe's own defense industries for a moment just like this. And then third, delaying EU and NATO membership for Ukraine. What I'm curious about is what gives you confidence that anything will change on any of these? Uh, it gives me confidence to see what has happened uh, in the Black Sea, because that's actually one of the positive news, uh, which also counter uh, the assessment that this is a stalemate. Because in the Black Sea, you have seen uh, the Ukrainians succeed in pushing back uh, the Russian Black uh, Sea fleet. Uh, it's uh, actually... Uh, it's been pushed back uh, to more safe Russian harbors, which has opened the Black Sea right now uh, for navi free navigation, so to speak, from the Ukrainian uh, seaport Odessa uh, and has allowed Ukraine to ship food uh, and, and other goods from Ukraine to the rest of the world. So that's a success story which demonstrates that if the Ukrainians receive the weapons they need, they're very skilled at using them. And that's why uh, I'm arguing uh, that we should lift all self-imposed restrictions on weapon deliveries. The Germans should, as soon as possible, deliver the Taurus missiles. They have a range of 500 kilometers. Um, the Americans uh, should uh, agree to deliver the long-range missiles, so-called Atamax missiles, with a range of 300 uh, kilometers. We should speed up uh, delivery of more battle tanks, more drones, m help the Ukrainians with more electronic uh, warfare. If we do all that, it gives me optimism that the Ukrainians have a fair chance uh, to win this war and kick out the Russian troops from uh, Ukrainian soil. But are you optimistic that any of that is possible? Uh, and I ask because Western fatigue is real, especially in the United States. I was struck by how in her speech in Munich last week, US Vice President Kamala Harris said, Joe Biden and I will stand by Ukraine. She didn't say 
America will stand by Ukraine, just her and the president. Yes, you're right. One of the problems right now is the U.S. hesitation, or I would say the hesitation in U.S. Congress to reach a deal uh, on continued assistance to, to Ukraine. But the positive news is whenever I visit Congress, and I did some uh, so some weeks ago, I note a huge bipartisan support for continuing the assistance to Ukraine. It's only a small minority within uh, the Republican Party that holds uh, this package of assistance uh, hostage. Um, so I hope US Congress would reach a deal at the beginning of March, a deal consisting, a package consisting of four elements. Firstly, assistance to Ukraine. Secondly, assistance to Israel. Third, assistance to Taiwan. And then fourth, uh, strengthening of uh, the US border uh, to uh, Mexico, strengthening of the, the immigration policies. Uh, a package with those four elements uh, is sensible and reasonable because all those conflicts are interconnected. So I hope and I have some optimism that a deal will be reached on this next month. It's far too late, but better late than never. I mean, you call it sensible and it certainly sounds like it is, but if only sensible things were guaranteed passage in the American Congress. But related to this, there's been a lot of talk recently of Trump-proofing NATO. Trump proofing alliances, in other words, getting ready for a world in which the next American president doesn't care so much about the world's biggest military alliance, doesn't care so much about multilateralism. Do you think that's possible? I mean, can NATO, for example, Trump proof itself? First of all, in all fairness, I think uh, Trump's uh, harsh rhetorics uh, have been an eye-opener for many Europeans. So finally, the Europeans has stepped up to the plate, has increased uh, their defense investments. And this year, I think 18 out of uh, 31 allies will fulfill the 2% target and next year even more. So we are on the right direction. I, I think we should, we should acknowledge that is in part due to the threat, so to speak, uh, of uh, Mr. Trump. But at the same, so in that respect, his harsh rhetorics have strengthened NATO militarily. But at the same time, he has weakened NATO politically because he has raised doubts about his commitment to Article 5 the famous article that states that we consider an attack on one, an attack on all. And when a US president publicly raises doubts about his commitment to Article 5, it might tempt Putin to test the resolve of our alliance. And the more, this time, uh, Trump also almost invited Putin to do whatever he might want to do, 
with countries that do not fulfill the 2% target. Uh, I, I think that's irresponsible speed uh, from uh, a presidential candidate in the US. But let's not forget, elections have not been held yet. It remains to be seen in November who will be the next US president. Given everything you say, in the interim, what should NATO be doing, for example, to prepare for a wider war with Russia? I was struck by so many comments from European leaders in Munich last week, who, you know, for example, Denmark's uh, new leader, who, you know, they want to give Ukraine everything they have, in part to make sure that not only this war is dealt with, but that it just gets harder and harder for Putin to try anything against any other NATO country. Exactly. And um, I, I was very satisfied to, to, to listen to the Danish prime minister who said, OK, uh, we have now donated the whole of the Danish artillery to Ukraine uh, because the war is going on right now. It's going on in Ukraine, and that's why we should deliver to Ukraine everything they need uh, and do it immediately. Uh, uh, it's correct that we, we need more munitions in Ukraine, and it's also correct that we cannot increase our production of that overnight. But one thing we can do uh, would be to decide to deliver uh, weapons that we have already in stock immediately to the Ukrainians. I've already mentioned the German towels, uh, the American Atamaks and, and other stuff. We do have it in our inventories. So we should deliver that to Ukrainians uh, right now. What more can we do? Uh, right now, um, a number of allies are um, signing security agreements uh, with uh, Ukraine. Uh, the UK, Germany, France have done so. Today, my country, Denmark, has uh, signed a similar uh, security agreement and more will follow in the coming days. I think the two-year anniversary uh, will mark a significant increase in the number of countries that have signed long-term, that is 10-year security agreements uh, with Ukraine. And those security agreements are binding commitments that will tell Putin uh, that we are in this, in this for as long as it takes. And I would add, with as much as it takes. So that's also important uh, uh, for the Ukrainians to, to know that they're not alone. We are here to help them to avoid a similar attack in the future. And that's exactly the purpose of those uh, security agreements. Um, to, uh, in May 22, Zelensky asked me to coach an international working group uh, with his chief of staff under Yemark to prepare such security guarantees we worked hard over the summer in September 22. We presented a package of proposals called the Kiev Security Compact. And the purpose of that is to make Ukraine uh, capable to defend itself by itself. And I'm pleased to see that 
uh, a number of allies now are signing up to those security guarantees. Mm. Let's widen the lens a little bit. I have to ask how the conflict in the Middle East is impacting the outcome of what happens in Ukraine. So the United States in particular, I think, is increasingly unpopular for its support of Israel. Is global criticism of Washington in one arena harming Kyiv in another one? I think the most negative impact uh, of uh, the Israeli-Hamas war is that it has distracted attention, it has turned away attention from Ukraine to the Middle East. And we have seen how Putin has exploited uh, that change of attention and stepped up uh, his attacks uh, against um, against Ukraine. And clearly Putin calculates uh, that um, now the US will be so focused uh, on the Middle East conflict that it will turn away attention uh, and support uh, from, um, uh, from, from Ukraine. So I think it has already had a very negative impact uh, on, on the Ukrainian uh, war uh, against uh, Russia. Sure, but that's um, you know one side of it, uh, Putin's side. But on the other side of it, there are cracks, uh, seeming cracks, in the West's unity. So the EU's foreign affairs chief, uh, Josep Borrell, um, he's had some very harsh words of late, in particular for Washington. And I'm curious how European leaders are navigating concerns they might have with America's Middle East strategy, uh, because even as they criticize America, they still clearly need Washington as a NATO ally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, irrespective of who is occupying the White House, the Europeans must increase their responsibility for their own security, no doubt. Uh, so we need uh, the, the US, we need a strong transatlantic alliance. And I think the good news is that we have seen an unprecedented unity within Europe and across the Atlantic between Europe and the US ever since uh, the Russian invasion uh, of, of Ukraine. Clearly, there are different views uh, on uh, the Israeli uh, conflict, but don't think uh, that will have a negative uh, effect uh, on uh, our unity when it comes to, um, to Ukraine. And my view is very clear. Israel has the right uh, to defend itself uh, and also to make sure that Hamas uh, will not regain power uh, in, uh, in Gaza. But obviously, uh, the, the Israeli retaliation against uh, Hamas uh, must follow international law, respect, uh, human rights, uh, etc. Uh, so I hope that we will soon see at least a humanitarian pause uh, in the fighting in Gaza. I'm going to widen the lens a little bit more now. So at some level, both of these conflicts are linked to what we call the Global South, which hasn't quite supported the West in the ways that the West has wanted. And it strikes me that while at the start of the war, there was a lot of discussion about wooing emerging economies. No one talks about that anymore. India is going to do India. 
Saudi's going to do Saudi. Why do you think the West lost the global South? Unfortunately, I think it's it's uh, an an old mistake, so to speak. I, I think we have uh, offered too little uh, attention uh, to Africa, to Latin America, uh, to parts of uh, Asia. And we have let the Chinese, for instance, invest vastly uh, in uh, in Africa. Uh, we have let the Russians uh, get a foothold in Africa when it comes to uh, security and uh, security engagement with scrupulous dictators uh, in the African uh, continent. So I think we should uh, um, put much more attention uh, to to Africa, to Latin America, to other developing uh, countries across the world and offer them better alternatives uh, than uh, the Chinese, uh, for instance, uh, have, have done. I mean, China extracts mineral resources uh, from uh, Africa, from Latin America, from other parts uh, of the world, without uh, giving true value to that in those continents. On the contrary, they extract they extract uh, the mineral resources and use them and improve their value in China. So I think many African leaders realize that's the reality. But the argument I often hear is uh, they tell us, yes, we need money. And uh, the Chinese arrive with a checkbook and you, the Europeans, arrive with a rule book. And there is some truth in that. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. The other thing that strikes me as having changed from two years ago to now is sanctions. Two years ago, there was a real sense that sanctions would dramatically cripple the Russian economy. That hasn't quite happened. Russia now has more of a wartime economy. The IMF is convinced that the Russian economy is actually growing by small amounts. And I'm curious here, given all that you've been saying about expanding 
the supply of Western weaponry to Ukraine, essentially giving it their all. Why have people stopped talking about doubling down on sanctions or did that just not work? Can it not work? Is there nothing left in the arsenal? Actually, I think it will be an issue uh, that we talk much more about because we have to close the loopholes uh, in the sanction uh, regimes. Uh, and now uh, the EU has just approved a 13th uh, sanction package uh, directed uh, at uh, the Russian economy and Russian uh, individuals. Um, I've never ever argued that sanctions would be 100% effective. We know that the longer sanctions are enforced, uh, the more loopholes uh, there, will, there will be. So we have really to do our utmost to stop those uh, loopholes, including sanctioned uh, companies in third countries that are not directly uh, involved in the conflict, but where companies help the Russians circumvent uh, the sanctions. Um, so I think sanctions will still be high on the agenda. Uh, but let's face it, sanctions will never do it alone. We have to use the hard instruments, and that's why we have to step up uh, when it comes to weapon deliveries uh, to, to, to Ukraine. But we have seen, when it comes to energy, for instance, that Europe has decreased its dependency on Russian oil and gas to almost zero. Overnight, it has been an impressive transition. But... Uh, other countries have actually uh, replaced Europe as uh, consumers of uh, Russian energy, and that's uh, China, India, and Turkey. Uh, maybe the Russians don't get as high a price as they did before, but still, they have got alternative ways of selling their uh, energy. And that's why we also, for instance, when it comes to India, India is an interesting country because basically, of course, India is the world's biggest democracy. But India has relations with autocrats. They get weapon deliveries uh, from uh, Russia and now also cheap oil and gas uh, from uh, Russia. At the same time, uh, India has uh, tense relations with another uh, autocratic uh, country, namely uh, China, uh, while in the BRICS uh, cooperation, uh, they are at least formally cooperating uh, with, uh, with uh, China. But at the same time, uh, India rides another horse, namely security cooperation with um, with the United States, within the so-called Quad, uh, which is a security cooperation between the US, Australia, Japan, and India. And I think- But I have to Quad say, uh, doesn't it strike you that the West has given up even trying to get India to change its behavior? I mean, I'm in New Delhi right now, and I can tell you that um, you know, officials here are very proud of the fact that India is buying you know, 13 to 14 times as much Russian oil today uh, than it was two years ago. There was a press conference in Munich last week where the Indian Foreign Minister S. Jayashankar was sitting right beside 
uh, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State. And he essentially told reporters, you know, why are you criticizing me for making the choices I'm making? You should be admiring me because smart people make smart choices. It seems to me that the West has given up even trying to get uh, swing states like India, middle powers like India, to um, close these loopholes that you're talking about. Yeah, but to a certain degree, you're right. Uh, and that's also my conclusion when it comes to India, that we have to invest much more uh, in providing India with uh, sh suitable, sustainable and better alternatives. Uh, so to encourage India to stop um, importing uh, Russian weapons, we should replace it by offering India uh, weapons. Same goes for energy and other uh, and uh, other uh, kinds of um, uh, goods and stuff. We should uh, provide the uh, developing countries uh, with a better narrative and a better story. That's exactly what happened during the Cold War. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed not only because of the lack of economic capacity, but also because um, the people in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, not least, they could see that a liberal capitalistic system provided much better life opportunities. And that's exactly what we should uh, do much more of. So in the time we have left, um, we've spent much of this discussion talking about the things that the West needs to do to support Ukraine in the here and now, you know, weapons transfers and the like. Where do you see year three headed? So, you know, the fighting will continue. What are you, how are you thinking about the possibility of talks around a possible settlement uh, of the two sides getting together? First of all, it's for the Ukrainians to determine when time is right uh, to start negotiations uh, with Russia. It's not our task to push the Ukrainians into premature peace negotiations. We should not forget that if a final settlement is not considered fair uh, by the Ukrainian uh, people, uh, then you have just fueled a new conflict. And you will have a continued conflict because you will see parties, uh, you will see guerrilla activities, you will see a constant um, uh, fighting if a settlement is not considered to be a fair peace and a fair settlement. So our obligation is to deliver to Ukrainians what they need so that they have the strongest possible hand if and when peace negotiations uh, with Russia uh, start. The Ukrainians have the will to fight. It's our obligation to give them the means uh, to, to fight. But respectfully, there's, there, there's, there's a, little, a little bit of a contradiction here, um, what I hear, because you're saying that it's the Ukrainians who get to decide how this ends, but you also hear European leaders and NATO leaders say, this is our fight. So this is everyone's fight. So why is it that it's everyone's fight, but only the Ukrainians get to decide? That's point one. And the other thing, just to push back on what you were saying, is that 
any settlement would be a compromise. Both sides would have to give up maximalist positions to sit at a table uh, and come up with something that is palatable to both sides. Uh, to your first point, the fact is that uh, the Ukrainians are fighting on behalf of all of us. Actually, for us, if I may use that expression, for us it's a quite good deal uh, that the Ukrainians fight uh, and they are suffering blood and treasury on our behalf, so to speak, to protect not only their own country, but I would argue the whole of the European continent against an aggressive uh, Russia. And, and uh, now seen from a, uh, an American perspective, it costs the, uh, the, the American taxpayers uh, maybe three or 4% of their defense budget. And, and, and for that small amount of money, uh, the Americans uh, have already achieved a significant degradation of uh, the Russian army and the Russian military force. So, seen from our perspective, uh, the Ukrainians are fighting on our behalf. Uh, and if we don't, I mean, if we don't let it be up to them to decide when fighting shall stop and be replaced by peace negotiations, then a final settlement will not be considered fair and we will not have achieved what we wanted, namely peace and permanent stability in the European continent. But let me add to this. I think time has come to invite Ukraine to join NATO. I know it will be a hard sell. Uh, there are a lot of counter-arguments. One of them is we cannot invite Ukraine to join NATO as long as a war is going on. But think about it. That is an extremely dangerous argument because de facto you're telling Putin just continue the fighting then you will prevent uh, Ukrainian membership of NATO. We have to break that vicious circle. And that's why I have reached the conclusion. Now time has come to invite Ukraine to join NATO and an invitation should be extended at the upcoming NATO summit in Washington DC in July. But what happens then for the territory that Ukraine claims but doesn't control? So, you know, Crimea, for example, areas in Luhansk and the Donbass, because if you were to then do what you're describing, one of two things happens. Either NATO then is responsible for retaking those territories or Ukraine has de facto given up those territories. It's one of the two. Yeah. And that's exactly why there will, of course, be a process uh, from your send invitation until actual accession. Uh, and in the meantime, the NATO-Ukraine Council should discuss exactly the details uh, you point to, because that's not trivial questions. We have to uh, maintain the respect, uh, the credibility about uh, Article 5. Uh, that states an attack on one is an, considered an attack on all. We have to really maintain respect for that uh, article. So, the questions you raise will have to be answered and determined uh, in the NATO-Ukraine Council. So my view is extend an invitation in July and then spend some time in the NATO-Ukraine Council 
to work out those uh, issues. And when time is right, uh, then uh, Ukraine can uh, join uh, NATO. But in the meantime, uh, Ukraine will need security guarantees and they are now evolving and I appreciate that. And I also think we could do other things. In addition to delivering all the weapons the Ukrainians need, we should integrate our air defense uh, with Ukraine so that we help the Ukrainians shoot down incoming Russian missiles and drones and do it from NATO territory. And we should, as a third point, help the Ukrainians uh, ensure free navigation in the Black Sea, including demining uh, of the Black Sea. So there's a, there are a lot of things we can do. Um, I'm hearing that potentially uh, NATO Secretary General, your successor, Jens Stoltenberg, will step down later this year. Uh, there are reports that Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte uh, has secured the support of uh, maybe two-thirds of NATO countries to lead the alliance. Uh, do you support him? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's a well-qualified candidate uh, for this post. Uh, I think I, I was the first uh, prime minister to be nominated uh, head uh, of uh, NATO, and I was succeeded by Ian Stoltenberg, who had also served as prime minister. And I think it's a right level uh, because it eases uh, the NATO Secretary General's ability to engage uh, with uh, capitals uh, within the alliance. So I think uh, uh, Prime Minister Rode would be an excellent candidate. And personally, I think he has support from much more than two thirds uh, of the allies right now. But as you know, in NATO, all decisions must be uh, made by a consensus. Uh, so it's not a given uh, yet. But let's see. I think it's a high probability that he will be the next Secretary of NATO. Let me ask you a macro question just to close us out. Um, since we're talking about NATO, there was a time when NATO was thinking about a China strategy. There was a time further back when uh, NATO was very involved in Afghanistan. Uh, now, of course, it seems to be laser focused on the European question and on fending off Russia. Do you think NATO's made a lot of mistakes in the past by you know, meandering uh, in other parts of the world instead of laser focusing on Russia and on Europe? No, I think we did the right thing uh, in defining our territorial uh, defense and security at that time uh, by going out of area, so to speak, uh, because we were threatened uh, from terrorism rooted in Afghanistan, uh, from uh, piracy uh, at the Horn of Africa. Uh, uh, so uh, there were a lot of, of tasks, but I think the mistake we did was to underestimate uh, the ambitions of uh, Putin. Uh, we underestimated his uh, brutality and in many respects, we have miscalculated uh, the Russian uh, or I would say Putin's desire to re-establish um, 
the Russian Empire, so to speak. Uh, that was our major mistake seen retrospectively. Um, so NATO had to adapt and strengthen its territorial defense by a stronger presence uh, along the borders of, um, of Russia. And we have succeeded in doing that. Now Finland uh, has uh, joined NATO. Sweden will do it soon. So Putin wanted less NATO. He got more NATO. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, you're the former Secretary General of NATO, also the former Prime Minister of Denmark. I thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. Next week, Ivo Dalder, the head of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and also the former American ambassador to NATO. If you want to see who's coming up on future episodes of FP Live, head to foreignpolicy.com. As you know, we conduct these interviews live and on video, but we often plan them out weeks ahead of time. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live is Tal Alvar. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.